Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. We are in uh, the most wonderful letter ever written, I have to say. What's known as the Book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. And we've made our way through the first three chapters, which are the foundational chapters for everything in the letter. Because in those first three chapters, uh, we learn, first of all, that none of us is going to make it uh, to be with God in heavenly dwellings if we are counting upon our performance. Those of you who are the most religious, those of you who are the most righteous, you don't have a chance if you are expecting to get there based on your performance. Those of you who are obviously, I mean like real obviously, dirty, rotten scoundrels and have been for a long time, You've got the same chance those other guys have because it all happens the same way, Paul says. It's by justification. It is justification or being accepted by God through simple trust in the provision that God makes in Jesus Christ. That's it. And that puts everybody on the same ground. And Paul says there are some implications from this earth-shattering truth uh, Number one, he says, there's to be no boasting. Nobody has any grounds to brag about anything. All you can brag about is Jesus. And Paul says, of course, earlier in Galatians, may I never boast about anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's our only boast. We have no grounds for boasting in our own performance because our performance is not good enough to make us acceptable before God. Second thing Paul says, if this is true, then those of you who are religious insiders, those of you who've grown up in the church, those of you who've never known a day when you're not a Christian, you stop looking down upon those people who are just coming in now. Don't think that you have a greater standing before God because you've been serving him longer than the poor slob who came in just like you did, except he came in 40 years later. So we're all on the same ground. So he says, you Jews who are the ethnic children of Abraham, don't get up on your high horse and think that you have some privileged position over the Gentiles. And we know that the Jew-Gentile division was the greatest division in the world. And Paul is saying that division has been bridged. And that's the reason that in our churches, every sort of chasm, human chasm, should be bridged because we're all in the same family. So that's the second implication. And the third implication, he said, was it may sound to you is as though I'm saying that the law has no place in the Christian life. It may sound to you as though I just chunked the law and the traditions overboard and said they're useless. He says, no, just the opposite. This is the very way that we establish the role of the law in the Christian life. We uphold the law, he says, and his point that he'll be making later, of course, is the only way you can follow the law is if you have been justified and you know that you're not guilty before God. That's the only way in which you can approach him. That's the only way in which you could actually love him is if, is if you know that he, first of all, loved you and forgave you all your sins. Now you can love him, draw near to him and become more and more like him. Imperfectly, of course, in this life, but your general direction is to follow the Lord and obey his law. So Paul makes those three implications, gives us those three implications of this earth-shattering good news, the gospel. And that we saw that's the heart of the gospel. The gospel is good news, literally, and it's good news about a kingdom, Jesus tells us. Uh, he says that uh, uh, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news, Jesus says. And the good news is the kingdom is here and in the person of Jesus Christ personally is the king. And we've seen that it's not good news unless we are given amnesty, unless we are reconciled to the king. We're all his criminals. We've all been rebels in the kingdom. So it's not good news to us that the king is coming back unless we can receive amnesty. And the good news is amnesty is available. Anybody who'll trust the king, anybody who'll trust the one that you've offended, who has all the power in the cosmos, if you'll trust him to be gracious to you, if you'll trust the provision he made for you, then you are fully reconciled into the kingdom. There's the heart of the good news. So the heart of the heart is the sacrifice that Jesus made to reconcile us to himself. 
And that's what we've been studying in the first three chapters of Romans. Now, the big question, for, especially for the Jewish audience, remember the Roman church is a mixture of Jew and Gentile, the way the church should be. Church should always be multi-ethnic. It should break down all the barriers. This Roman church was a good conglomeration, a motley crew. And Paul is especially addressing himself to the Jewish folks now who have a question and he can anticipate it clearly because he's a Jew himself. He knows exactly how they think. And they're thinking, so you're giving us this new stuff. How does this stand up with our theological tradition about Abraham? How does this stand up to the Old Testament and all the traditions we've received? How can what you're saying be true and the Old Testament also be true that our mothers and fathers taught us? Paul now in Romans 4, the chapter we're entering now, launches into an explanation to answer that question. And in so doing, he gives us some contours about Christian faith that are vitally important. Because for those of you who are Protestants, uh, which would be most of you in this room, normally you've been taught clearly that we're justified by faith alone. You got that down. What you sometimes throw out the door is we have a law to obey. And we are to be obedient to the law of God. And I've heard Protestants throughout all my years say wild and crazy things about the irrelevance of the law of God to their lives. And it's completely wrong. The law has nothing to do with our justification. We cannot be justified by obedience to the law. But the law has everything to do with our sanctification. You cannot be sanctified without the law and without an attempt and an, an effort and an endeavor to conform to the law of God and and. Through Paul's discussion of this question about the Old Testament and its support of what he's saying, he brings out some very important concepts about what Christian faith really is relevant to its conformity to the law of God. So let's take a look at it. And of course, Paul is going to use two classic figures from the Old Testament to make his point. He's going to say, look, I'm going to tell you about Abraham. I'm going to mention David. Here are your two key figures in the Old Testament that we highly esteem. And let me show you how what I've been teaching you is exactly the way they believed. You thought it was otherwise, but you missed it in the Old Testament. And Paul will point to the Old Testament and specific verses to show and make his point. And that in and of itself teaches us something. The Bible is the Word of God. And Paul it goes to the Word of God to prove his point. As a matter of fact, everything Paul is saying is simply an accurate exposition of the Old Testament. But his authority is two things. First of all, the Old Testament. And secondly, a personal infallible revelation from God himself about how to interpret that Old Testament. And that's exactly what he's doing in Romans chapter 4. Let's read the chapter together and then we'll study it for a few moments. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. 
and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but, there is no law, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All right. Please notice that Paul is addressing them with two key figures out of the Old Testament. Just as he said in the beginning of that section in Romans 3, 21 and following, that this was foretold by the prophets. In other words, I'm not telling you something that's not in the Old Testament. Now he's going to go back and do a little exegesis out of the Old Testament and show them how the so-called New Testament gospel is actually a biblical gospel. It was there all the time and we missed it. The rabbis missed it. So Paul is saying, first of all, let's look at Abraham. No boasting from the patriarchs. No boasting from the patriarchs. So you can see he's going back to his implications at the end of Romans 3. No boasting, no discrimination, no lawlessness. Those three points he made at the end of Romans 3, he's picking them back up right here. If you read Stott, he showed you that very clearly. Now Paul is going through those three implications. He's going to see, show you how they work out in the life of Abraham. But his major point is that Abraham is the key figure who illustrates everything he's talking about. Now we have to understand that in Paul's day, first century Judaism, Abraham was the George Washington, the Pope Francis, the John Calvin, I mean, whatever figures you want to uh, ascribe to him, that's what Abraham was. He was everything. He was the paradigm of righteousness. He was the picture of a godly man. He was the one who was held up before every son and told, you're to be just like Father Abraham. He's our father. He was revered. And in fact, in some ways, he was worshiped wrongly. But he was held up as the, as the paragon of righteousness. And so when Paul's referring to Abraham, he's saying, okay, let's take, let's take Father Abraham. The best example, the, 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 the Billy Graham, the best example of godliness you folks can possibly come up with, let's take him and look at him. He has no grounds for boasting. So, well, why do you say that? Because look at your Bible and you'll see how he was justified. This Abraham who was living uh, among the pagans and received the call from God and at 75 years of age left everything because of the call of God on his life. And he went to a land he had never seen and took his family with him. Yes, this amazingly bold and, and faithful Abraham. He has nothing to brag about because he was justified, the Bible says, through faith. Take your Bibles, leave your finger there in page 2165 and turn me back to Genesis chapter 15 and you'll see this on page 77. Abraham has already left Ur of the Chaldees. He's come to the promised land. 
They had some famine, so he went down to Egypt for a while. He's coming back to the promised land. And he's, he's now 86 years old. No children. And uh, after these things, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So Abram is saying, God, you made a promise to me 11 years ago in Ur of the Chaldees when I was 75 that you're going to make me a great nation, that I was going to have a big extended family. I don't have one child. You know who the heir, you know, God, who the heir of my household is? It's my slave. That's my heir. So it's in typical Jewish fashion. I'm sure he's giving God the business, you know. So... Uh, so he's, 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 he's explaining to God, you know, how things are going, you know, because God needs a little advice from Abraham. So, so then Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now, Abram's 86 years old. Okay, all right, okay, God, okay. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now look at this verse. And he believed the Lord. Gentlemen, they didn't have Viagra in that day. You with me? He's 86 years old. He's probably lost all of his bullets. You know, he not have anything to shoot with. He's 86 years old and he's complaining to the Lord. To us, we'd say, hey, it's over, it's done. Make your complaint to the Lord. And the Lord says, Abram, take a look up here. And if you've ever been out in the wilderness where there are no city lights and look at the sky, you know what I'm talking about. Abram, you look at that sky. Can you count all those stars? You can't count them. By the time you start trying to count them, you lose where you started to count. You can't. There's just so many of them. He says, Abram, that's what your nation's going to look like. Okay, now Abram's got a choice to make. Do you believe that at 86 years of age or do you not? And the word in the Bible, Paul says, it was very simple. He believed God. Now look at the next words. This is Paul's big point. He says, look at your Old Testament. And he, that would be God, counted it to him as righteousness. The word counted, we've already seen as the word imputed or reckoned, like an accountant counts something, an asset, or counts something, a liability. You just impute it. And Moses says, this is how Father Abraham got his righteousness. Not by leaving Ur of the Chaldees. Not by believing that he'd be, uh, or, I'm sorry, not by uh, sacrificing his son Isaac. He received his righteousness because he simply believed the Lord. And that was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, now back to Romans 4. Paul's saying, please, gentlemen, read your Bibles. You Jews <laughs> who think you alone know what the Bible says. Let me tell you what it says and you've been missing it. You thought that Abraham had accrued unto himself the righteousness that made him acceptable to God. In fact, there were some Jewish writings at the time which suggested that Abraham's righteousness could overflow and be given to the rest of Israel. And Paul's saying, you completely misunderstood how Abram received his righteousness. It was because he simply believed an impossible promise because he believed God. God's power, God's compassion, God's faithfulness. So there's no boasting on Abram's part. And Paul goes on to say, look, if he had worked to earn this, it wouldn't be a gift. It's a gift when you don't earn it. And so it's a gift to Abraham because he didn't earn it. It was given to him contrary to his accomplishments. Now, this, for anybody who reads the Old Testament carefully about Abraham, this will be obvious. If you go back to Genesis 12, you remember the story? He leaves Ur of the Chaldees, this great heroic act 
which anybody who has faith, they'll have their moments when you're going, wow, look at that act. Man, that guy's tithing. That's really something. Give him 10% of his income. Bring it into the storehouse of the church. That's amazing. Yeah, great act. But then you remember at the end of chapter 12, what he does. They start to have a famine. So they have to go down to Egypt. And Sarah at that time was 66 years old, you know, about my age. And from what we can gather in the Bible, she was absolutely gorgeous at 66. Now I know you guys think 66 and gorgeous. Yeah, I don't know. It gets me too. But she was. In fact, Abram knew she was gorgeous. And he knew that if he went to Egypt and everybody there knew that he was her husband, they would kill him to get her. That's how gorgeous she was. I mean, I can't imagine this, but uh, maybe I shouldn't even try to imagine it. But she, she was gorgeous. So here's what Abraham did. He said, on the way to Egypt, he says to Sarah, Sarah, if I, we get down here and we let them know we're married, I, I'm not going to last very long, so just be my sister. And he gives her over to the harem of Pharaoh. She's in Pharaoh's harem as one of his women because Pharaoh hears about her and he calls her into his harem. Great going, Abraham. Good going, yeah. There's Father Abraham and his outstanding righteousness. And you know the amazing thing is, in chapter 20, he does it again. Who is this guy? He, second time, gives his wife over because, so that Abimelech won't kill him. And he lies about it, and she ta he takes her in to be one of his wives, and he has these horrible dreams and terrible experiences, and he says, Abraham, what are you trying to do? Get me killed? Take this woman back. So Abraham does this twice. He lies and hands his wife over to be somebody else's mistress. <laughs> it's, it's really bad. I'm sorry to be laughing, but what's laughable is that he's the great paragon of righteousness. And if you read about any of your other paragons, you'll find some similar stories probably. So here's what Paul is saying. He didn't earn his righteousness. He fell short of the glory of God, just like all the rest of us. He believed God and he counted it as righteousness. Now this word counted, you'll find five times in those first eight verses. This is an important word, counted or imputed. It's an important word. He'll come back to it at the end of this chapter because he's going to say, just like it was imputed to Abraham, it's imputed to you. Do you think this story is just about Abraham? No, I'm talking about you guys. You get it the same way. It's imputed to you. Now, look at what he says about David. He says, okay, let me take a side road here and talk about David for just a minute. And we're going to look at imputation the other way. First of all, God imputes righteousness. He counts Abraham as righteous, not because Abraham has earned it, but as a gift, he gives him the status of righteousness simply through the instrumentality of faith. Then he points to David and see what he says about him. He says, let's look at David's words. And of course, he's quoting right from Psalm 32. And David says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So you see, there's a double counting there's a counting of righteousness that we didn't earn that's given to us as a grace gift. And then there's a counting of sins that goes somewhere else. It's not counted against us. You say, it's completely unfair. I know it's completely unfair. Praise the Lord. Because if we depend upon fairness, we're cooked. So we got to have God being gracious to us. So he counts us as righteous and he counts our sins somewhere else. Now, let me just ask you, where does this righteousness come from and where do our sins go? Because God is a righteous judge, so sins have to be paid for. Glad you asked that question. That's a very important one. Look at 2 Corinthians, and this will be on, on page uh, 2231. I'm sorry, 22, yeah, uh, 30, 31. And here Paul is talking about reconciliation. Look at verse 19. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, same word, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now look at this, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin. 
who knew no sin. How do you make somebody sin who never knew any sin? You count it to them. You simply impute it to them. It's like an accounting procedure. It's just counted or reckoned to him, even though he never knew sin. He never committed sin. He never committed sin in thought, word, or deed. He was perfectly pure. He who knew no sin became sin because back in verse 19, we are told that he didn't count our trespasses against us. They went against him by counting, by merely imputation. Then keep reading the rest of verse 21. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. How in the world do we get a status of the righteousness of God? In him, we get his righteousness. So he accomplishes something we couldn't accomplish for ourselves. It's counted to us. We did the ugly, awful, ugly, no good things. And all of that is counted to him. Now this is called double imputation, the theological term for it. And there's some theological debate about it out there. I'll let, let you engage those as you will. But this is the reason that traditional folks like me, I hope I'm orthodox, are saying, here it is, boys, look at it. This is what Paul is saying, and he's saying it comes right from the Old Testament. So you people who are Old Testament people, you Jewish folks, look here and see. This is what the Bible always said. No boasting for Abraham. No boasting for David. David's sins maybe were a little better remembered than Abraham's, but Abraham's were every bit as bad. Now, secondly, verse 9 through 12, no bias toward, it says circumstances up here. Now, I want to tell you how that word circumstances got up there. I have a very fine assistant. She's a woman. And somehow she took the word circumcision and turned it into circumstances. <laughs> and I missed it when I got the proof back. I thought, who would miss that? So it's not no bias toward circumstances. It's no bias toward circumcision. And you folks who are not circumcised, you'll be glad to hear that. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, let's look at Abraham and what else we learn about him. And Paul says, let me ask you a question. When he was counted righteous, this would be Genesis 15. Everybody knew what he was talking about. When he was counted righteous, was he circumcised or uncircumcised? Now, Paul knew, everybody knew the answer to that. He wasn't circumcised until Genesis 17. So he was uncircumcised when he was counted righteous. So you've got to understand in first century Judaism, circumcision, keeping the Sabbath, the food laws, that was everything to them. That's what made them Jewish. Those were their markers of acceptance before God. And so along with just the general principle of being justified by your obedience to the law, in the Jewish mindset, you were justified specifically by these ritual adherences that actually made you Jewish. And that's the reason the Sabbath and circumcision were so important to them. If you give those up, you give up your very markers of being one of God's people. Now, Paul is homing in now specifically on ritual adherence. And he's saying, let's look at the very heart of this matter that's on your mind. How can a person be acceptable to God when they eschew and renounce every marker that we know that makes a person one of God's people, like circumcision. Well, let me ask you, when Abram was counted righteous, was he marked or unmarked? Was he baptized or unbaptized? Was he a churchman or not a churchman? Was he circumcised or not circumcised? And they all knew the answer. He was uncircumcised. Paul says, point made. Some of you are having a real hard time, he says, accepting these wild and crazy Gentiles, these vandals, these wild people coming into the church and being considered brothers and sisters. You don't want to give your sons and daughters to their sons and daughters. You don't want to welcome them as members of, of the family. You're holding them at arm's length. Let me tell you something. That's who Abram was, your father. He was justified 
before he was circumcised. And Paul goes on to make the explanation here in this section. He says, do you understand what circumcision is? It's, it's a sacrament. It's a sign that you belong to God. And it's a seal, which is like the good housekeeping seal of approval. It's a, an affirmation that you belong to God. Fine. And like baptism, that's great. We all want to have the sign and the seal of the sacrament of baptism. Some of you believe in believer's baptism only. Some of you believe in family baptisms. It's a sign and a seal, either of something that's already happened in Abram's case or of something that would happen later in Isaac's case because Isaac then was circumcised before he believed. Abraham was circumcised after he believed. Paul's point there is that that means you don't have to be circumcised to be justified. You don't have to be baptized to be justified. So let me, I picked on three good denominations last time. Let me pick on Christian church right now. Uh, you have a tradition of saying that you have to be baptized, not only have to be baptized, but you have to be baptized in the church of Christ. If you're a church of Christ member, those of you with that background know what I'm saying. Just dead wrong. Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. Now, uh, the reason that folks like uh, the, all the Pado baptists here, the people who baptize families, children, we would say, Abraham, yes, believed first and then he, was, he received the sign. But then his children received the sign before they showed the faith. And that's the reason that you get the, the parallel with New Testament baptism, household baptism, and Old Testament baptism. Now that I've trashed just about everybody except the Presbyterians. But I got them last week, didn't I? Uh, let's move on. So he's saying... The purpose, he says, look, look at verse 11. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Do you see Paul is saying the gospel is evangelistic. It's, it's missional. It's got to get out because when God justified Abram, he was a pagan. He was marked as a pagan. He wasn't marked as one of us. He was like a Gentile. And he did that so that other Gentiles would be reached. And he goes on to say later, do you realize that God said to Abraham, you'll be the father of many nations. So how is Abraham going to be the father of many nations when you Presbyterians don't want to let anybody else in? How's this going to happen? How's it going to be if the Jews don't want any of the Gentiles to come in that Father Abraham is going to be the father of all the nations? So Paul, he's a very good biblical exegete. He's, he's, boy, he's laying it to him, isn't he? He's saying, you all have misunderstood your book and you've not rejoiced in the grace of God as you, art, as you ought. Abraham's righteousness came to him apart from the Jewish rituals and sacraments and so it is Today, we are all on equal footing. And this gives us then all the groundwork we need to be moving continually in every one of our churches toward being multi-ethnic and multi-international and multi-socioeconomic to the best of our ability going in all directions. And Paul would make the same argument with us. How can you have and be satisfied with a mono-ethnic church when you live in a multi-ethnic neighborhood? How can that be? Uh, because Father Abraham is to be the father of many nations and righteousness is imputed to people before they become part of your club. That's what he's saying to all the Jews. So no bias toward circumcision, no bias toward being an insider. Now, thirdly, look at verses 13 through 17. And here the apostle is saying again that there is no justification by the law. No justification by the law. He says in verse 14, for it is the adherence of the law, for if it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. So he's saying you can't have it both ways. You cannot say that you're saved as a gift by the grace of God through faith, and at the same time, you're going to say that you're also justified in some way before God by your works. This nullifies that, and this nullifies that. They are mutually exclusive. 
And you can't hang on to both at the same time. That's the point Paul is making. So make your choice. What gospel do you really believe? And he goes on to say that this is done so that the promise may rest on grace. So all this is so that you may receive grace and be loved unconditionally and be loved without any concern about whether you've disqualified yourself. You can rest and the promises of God rest on his grace. So Paul's point is, do you want to live over here in the realm of law, trespass, and wrath? Or would you like to live over here with promise and faith and grace? Take your choice. They're mutually exclusive. Pick one. And Paul says, please pick over here. And that's exactly what Abram was wise to do. And he's the father of all who believe. Now he goes on to show something very important about this faith. He said, I've made you the father of many nations, verse 17, in the presence of God. And then look at this important phrase, 17b, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Calls into existence the things that do not exist. Wow. Here is what Abraham is saying. He's saying that your justification is a miracle. It is the equivalent of a resurrection. Someone having been dead for four days like Lazarus or someone having been dead for three days like Jesus and being raised to life. That's what your justification is equivalent to in the realm of God. And another analogy, Paul says, let me tell you what your justification is like. It's like creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first words of the Bible, that's what your justification is like. God created something, namely your righteousness, out of nothing. There was nothing there to work with. He didn't take your righteousness and ramp it up a little bit, clean it up a little bit, get the smudges off of it and say, there he is, he's cleaned up. You know, I gave him a little, little bath. No, he recreated you. He made you a new, gave you a new status that you didn't even come close to earning. It's an entirely new status. It's an act of creation. It's a miracle. So interesting. You know, uh, some of you are romantics like myself, and you just love these great old musicals like Sound of Music. I mean, every time the thing comes on, I just can't resist it. I just love that movie. And uh, when the play came to Memphis, I had to go see it again. But there's one song in there that... Uh, Rogers and Hammerstein really messed up on. It's when <clears throat> she and the captain or whatever are finally getting it together, you know, in the little gazebo out in the back. And you know the song they sing, uh, uh, I'm, I must have done something good, but somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. And then she, Maria goes on to sing, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. I'm going, wait just a minute. Something does come from nothing, and God always can. She says, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. Therefore, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. She sounds like the rabbis. <laughs> that if you are accounted righteous or something good happens in your life, think back, somewhere back there, you obeyed your mother. Somewhere back there, you made an A on one of your papers, and now God is rewarding you. That is BS. <laughs> Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying with Abraham, Abraham received his righteousness, which was God making something out of nothing. In fact, he made something out of less than nothing. He made something out of trash and rubbish and a pile of dung. He made a righteous man simply by counting it to him as righteousness because his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, had accomplished it for him. He made something out of nothing. That's what Paul is saying. And he's saying, you Jewish folks, you church people who've grown up with this and you've got all your rationale going and you know what's right and what's wrong and everybody deserves what they get and all this. You've got all this sort of moral reasoning going on for you. You have demystified your Bible. You've forgotten the miraculous nature of your salvation. You've forgotten the gift of God in your justification. And this changes everything when you grasp it. Everything, as we shall see. 
He goes on to show what difference it makes. Look at Roman numeral number four, verses 18 through 22. No justification without genuine faith. Genuine faith. Now here is where Paul carefully reconnects the righteous deeds, not perfect, but the righteous deeds of Abraham with his gift of justification. And Paul is saying those acts of Abraham in leaving Ur of the Chaldees are not insignificant. They're actually of the essence of a genuine faith. A genuine faith believes, simply believes. It is the instrument through which we receive a righteous status given to us, earned by Christ. That same faith, the same faith leads to a changed life. Not a perfect life that could earn God's favor, but a changed life. So the trajectory of life is different than it was. So now Paul shows us something about faithful, believing Abraham. He was not like the rest of the family in Ur of the Chaldees. He was different. He came out of a pagan background, but he didn't stand his paganism. When he believed God, it actually changed his trajectory in the way that he lived his life. And Paul is saying what the Bible attests everywhere, that faith without works is dead. It's useless. It's not genuine. And it surely doesn't save. Saving faith is apart from works in justification. But saving faith is always accompanied by works in sanctification. So the law has nothing to do with our justification. The law has everything to do with our sanctification. We turn away from the law because we can't accomplish perfection. So we turn away from it in justifying us. Having been justified, we turn back to the law. And even though we're not conforming perfectly, we're saying, Lord, help us. We want to be more like Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect incarnation of the law of God. He is the expression of God's moral law. He is perfection. We want to be like him. Are we going to get there in this life? No, we're going to get there in the next life. But we're moving toward that life right now. And that's what Abraham did. And Paul is showing us that if you do not have that change in life, motivated by genuine faith, you should not expect that you've been justified. Because it's the same faith that leads to a changed life that also receives righteousness counted to us as a gift. That's the point here in verses 18 through 22. And here's how he describes Abraham. He says, in hope, he believed against hope. That sounds like it's an impossibly contradictory statement. What does he mean there? He means in spiritual hope, in biblical hope, he believed against human hope. Human hope says that when you're 86 and then later on, of course, you know, at 99, 99, Abraham is told, you're going to have a son. Abram objects. You know, first time he says, now he was complaining, you know, at 86, he still had some things going, I guess. He says, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be Eliezer. The way you're, the time schedule you're on, Lord, it's going to be Eliezer. The Lord says, no. So then the Lord gives him Hagar, his servant, uh, to go out and have sex with her and they have a child Ishmael. And so when he's 99 and the Lord repeats the promise, he says, Lord, now just let Ishmael live. Just let Ishmael be the one. You know, I'm 99. Come on. You expect me to do that again? You know, I did it at 86, had a child. You know, that's pretty good for an 86 year old. Don't you think everyone 86 who'd like to be able to do that? Just raise your hand. All right. Now, Abram actually did it at 86. He had a child through Hagar, who was the younger woman. Now the Lord is saying, no, Ishmael's not it. You're going to have a son by Sarah. He says, now, Lord, uh, a few years ago, Sarah was known as a beautiful woman. You know, when I, was, when I was 75 and she was 66, she was known as beautiful. Have you forgotten, Lord? She's 90, 90 years old. Now, you know, uh, once again, no Viagra, no Cialis or any of this kind of stuff. But, Lord, I, I'm not sure I've got it, what it takes here, but I know she doesn't. I mean, the woman, the woman has never had a child in her life. We wanted children all those years and all those decades went by. She never had a child. And now, Lord, she's 90. And you say, we're going to have a baby. And Abram just broke down and laughed. 
He, I mean, he was too old now to complain. All he could do was laugh. You know, you're, you're a joke, God. <laughs> and God says, you're going to name him? He laughed. That's what Isaac means. Because you laughed, Abram. You, you're going to laugh. I'm going to laugh when you see what happens. And Abraham believed him. He believed him. Believed him. Against all human hope, he had hope in what? The word of God. Gentlemen, you've got to look at your Bible this way. Even today, the Bible is promising you stuff that is outlandish. It's way beyond Disney World. It's beyond any, you know, the Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus and all this. This is way beyond any of those little fantasies. This is much bigger, much more fantastic, if you will, than the fantasies you were told as a child. Do you believe it? Against all human hope, believe it. You're given laws by which to live. And some of them are contrary to your intuitions and some of them are contrary to your culture and some of them are contrary to your workplace. Do you believe him? Are you willing to sacrifice everything, even what others would consider your right mind in order to believe him against all human hope? Here's what Paul is saying. This is the kind of man Abraham was. Why do you think he was that way? Because the Lord had granted him justification, had given him righteousness. Abraham knew he was God's man, not because of his circumcision, but because he simply believed. And Abraham wasn't going to surrender that. He was going to keep believing God, and he did. Keep reading. Paul says about him in verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. Now, notice Paul doesn't say, you know, Abraham was a little old. He couldn't think straight, so he didn't even, he didn't even think about his body. No, Paul says he was very aware of his body, <laughs> 99 years old. He considered it. He looked at reality. He looked at the wind and the waves, and he knew he was in a huge storm. He knew that it was impossible for this to happen. But he saw God, and he considered God as well as his body. And that's the way we consider God's word as well as our surrounding circumstances. And we, we're not unaware of the odds against us humanly. We're not unaware of the pluralistic society in which we live and all the expectations that are placed upon us and what it now means to be a civic and righteous person in society. We're not unaware of the moving standards around us. But we've got our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe Him. We're going to trust Him. We're going to follow Him. That's what Abraham did, Paul says. Now, he goes on to say, he also considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. But no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Fully convinced that God could do the impossible. And even if he didn't do it in Abraham's lifetime, he'd still give his life to God because you know Abraham was promised a great land and a great nation. When he died, what land did he have? His burial plot. That's all he owned. And the writer of Hebrews tells us what motivated Abraham. He was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. He knew that God one day would do what he promised. And yes, of course, it may not happen in Abraham's lifetime on this earth, but it would happen in his lifetime later on at the resurrection. And of course, Abraham's greatest trial, when he was called to go up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice his own son, his own son, Isaac, the child of his 99th year and Sarah's 90th year. And now he's called upon to sacrifice his own son at the command of God. Talk about a trial. And Abram believed and had hope against all human hope. And he took the knife to slay his son until the angel restrained him. And there was the very place on Mount Moriah where our Lord Jesus Christ the son of Abraham and the son of David gave his life for us and God didn't stay the knife this time. But Abram did it because the writer of Hebrews tells us he knew that God could raise his son from the dead. So yes, I slay him, but God can raise him up. That's how powerful God is. So when God gives us a command or gives us a promise, we are not constrained in our faith by what seems humanly possible. This is the problem of the evolutionist. They cannot possibly imagine a cosmology that includes a deity. 
And if you have a deity, a deity can do things beyond your natural imagination. He can break the laws of nature because he made the laws of nature. And so Abraham believed God against all hope, including the life of his own son. Now, lastly, look at verses 23 through 25. And here, Paul's saying, do you see now, my friends, this way in which we are justified is eminently biblical. And I've illustrated it for you in the classic example, the Billy Graham of all history. Here it is. He was justified because righteousness was counted to him and his sins were counted to somebody else. Double imputation. Do you see this? Now he says to them, do you think this was just, I'm just talking about Abraham? No, I'm talking about all of us. Abraham is the most difficult case. He's the one that you might have thought could have been justified on his own merits. I've taken the most difficult case in the history of the universe and I've proven to you from the Bible that his only way of being justified was by trusting in the provision that God makes by his promise. And so I'm saying this to you so that all of us lesser people, there are no Abrahams here, but there are sons of Abraham and here's how you become a son, son of Abraham. Not by joining an ethnic group, not by saying, I'd like to be Jewish. No, you join Abraham and his family by having the same faith he had. That's how you become a child of Abraham. Not by circumcision, not by joining the Jewish race or marrying a Jewish woman. No, you become a child of Abraham simply by trusting God. And see what he says here, that uh, for your, it's, it's, it's not just for his sake alone, but for ours, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's our trespasses now. It's not Abraham selling his wife off to keep his own life safe. It's not his sins. It's not David's sins of sinning with Bathsheba and killing Uriah. No, it's your sins. Paul says, I'm talking about you, all of you, Jew and Gentiles. Lay your sins upon Jesus Christ. Because he died that our trespasses may be counted to him. And he was raised because we were justified by his death on the cross. And God vindicated that great sacrifice by raising him from the dead and showing that he received the sacrifice on your behalf. He was raised for our justification. And Paul says, it's all in Jesus Christ. It's all in him. Give your life solely to him. Trust him. Anything Jesus promises you, believe it. Anything Jesus commands you, do it. Against all human hope. That's of the very nature of saving faith. What a gift. What a gift. Our righteousness is a gift. Our faith is a gift. Our eternal life is a gift. And you're a gift back to God of one that he has rescued for his eternal glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these great gifts you've given us. We pray that we may be men who believe, who really believe your promises and who believe your commandments, your ordinances, your statutes, all the things you've pronounced in your word. We pray that we may increasingly gain insight and understanding, that we may more and more be grateful for all that you've done for us. And as Abram did, to turn back then and follow you, knowing that all of our sins, even our whoppers, will be forgiven because our sins have been counted to another and his righteousness has been counted to us and we belong to you now and forever. So with thanksgiving and confidence, we make our prayers and live our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.